Welcome back to The Wrestling Room, and welcome back as we jump back into the most fantastic, magical, life-giving book on the planet, the Scriptures, the Bible. And we want to talk to you today. I, I always get so excited to be able to share with you some new revelation about God. Our world is moving so fast. Technology has us hypnotized, mesmerized, uh, almost zombieized, and we've lost the vision of the greatness of God. So when I speak into this camera, it's as if I want to come right and stand in front of you and, and grab you and say, God is great. God is great. Listen up. Jesus is coming. So that's the message. If you don't hear anything else, God is great and Jesus is coming. <laughs> anyway, there's more. I've got more than that. So I want to lift up Jesus. I want God to be great in front of you today. And Francis Schaeffer, an apologist and a theologian from years ago, he's passed on now. He wrote a book about God entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. <laughs> I love that strong title. He is there and He is not silent. There's a common misnomer about God that he's like an absentee landlord, meaning the only time you interact with him is if he wants something from you, like a rent check, or that he's just wound up the universe, placed the clock on a shelf, and gone on a long vacation, allowing just fate to take its course, and uh, that he doesn't care, he's not involved. Brothers and sisters, that couldn't be further from the truth. Now, Winston Churchill, as he lay dying on his deathbed after all the great feats that he had accomplished in his life, as he lay dying, he declared, I am bewildered by the world. The confusion is terrible. Some of his last words. On the other hand, someone commented to me some time ago, life is so daily, <laughs> reflecting on what they perceived as the routine mundaneness of life. So whether you are over on the spectrum of how confusing and chaotic it is, like Winston Churchill was, or routine and mundane and almost boring or somewhere in between, here's what I've got to say to you. God is alive and he's on the move. God is acting. He's speaking. He's orchestrating. He is there and he is not silent. And last week, we talked about, and I'm not going to re-preach this message, but we talked about the fact that God the Father holds the universal timepiece. He is the universal timekeeper. And there are a couple points. I'll just point them out, and then we're going to jump into the teaching from today. And that is this. There is a finish line to what we know as time or this age that we're living in. And he gave us the finish line. He said this, when this grand, great message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and slaves being set free, debts being erased of sin, <laughs> this message of Jesus who died on the cross, who paid the penalty for sin, went into the grave, came out of the grave, and is coming back when this message is preached to every language group in the whole world, Matthew 24, 14, then we hit the finish line. Then we hit the finish line. And I shared how close we are to the finish line. 
God is doing great things. But then we added another layer to this thought, and that is something that Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. He's speaking to believers and he's passionately urging them. He says, don't you see how vital it is to live a holy life? He said, we must be consumed with godliness, living pure, holy lives while we anticipate and help to speed up the coming of the day of God. In other words, the finish line. I received a question from one of the viewers named Ryan, and he asked this question. He said this, so just so I'm clear, are you saying that the return of Jesus is fluid, meaning it's movable? Here is my answer to him. Ryan, if we have the ability, as Peter exhorts, to hasten the day of the Lord by our godly lives, which certainly includes sharing the gospel, obedience to the commission of Jesus, then yes, and that's why it's so foolish to set dates, but our lives can sway the date. I went on to say this, the phrase hastening or speeding up the day of God means hurrying along. The root Greek word is pous, which means foot. The indication is that our actions put feet to the timeline of the second coming of Jesus. Now, I want to share a principle with you that will give you, I think, a bit of an insight into how God is, is, is holding this timepiece. God the Father operates on the principle of stoppage time. Now, I'm not a big soccer fan, but since moving to Seattle, the Seattle Sounders have won two championships, so I'm developing an affection for soccer. And if you watch soccer, you know about this principle of stoppage time. Now, stoppage time is time added to each of the 45-minute halves because of or as the result of injuries, fouls, goal celebrations, substitutions, fights, etc. So at the end of each 45-minute half, the referee adds a certain amount of time to make up for the lost playing time. Now, what is the result? The result is only the referee knows when the end of the game actually comes. So when we hit 0-0 at the end of the second half, the game isn't over. Now we're into stoppage time, and the referee alone knows when the game is going to end. In like fashion, God the Father is like a referee in a soccer game. Only he knows when the actual end of time exists, where it is, when it is. That's God's business, God the Father's business, and his alone. Now, what is the Bible's version of stoppage time? I want to give you two quick examples. The first is in the book of Jonah. You know the story. God has told this prophet Jonah, this rebellious prophet initially, to go to this evil city of Nineveh with one simple sentence as his message. And it's simply this, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the message. That's all he had. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So what is that message saying? 40 turns of the calendar and Nineveh as a city will be done, finished, gone, forever, period. At the end of 40 days, did Nineveh still exist? 
Absolutely, it did. In fact, Nineveh existed for another 200 years past the time that Jonah went in and preached this powerful one-sentence message. Nineveh lasted 200 more years. What in the world happened? What was the X factor? The X factor was simply this. The king and all the people of that grand, great, powerful city, that evil city, repented. Their hearts turned. They humbled themselves before God and they repented of their sins. There was reformation in the city and God extended the game for them. Stoppage time. 200 years of stoppage time because of repentance. Go to Daniel chapter 4 verse 27. In Daniel chapter 4, you have the story of the great King Nebuchadnezzar and God has dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. God has revealed in the first several chapters of the book how great he is, that he is, he is one who gives dreams and then gives the power to interpret the dreams. So Nebuchadnezzar has come face to face with the awesome power of God. He knows who God is but his memory has betrayed him. He's forgotten, and he's taking the credit for all of the great things that he has been given by God. And he's living a sinful life, and he has another dream as a leader. And Daniel comes and interprets the dream, and in the dream, a great tree is cut down and a stump is left. And Daniel said, that stump is you. The tree was you. The stump will become you if you don't repent. And here's what he says in Daniel 4, verse 27. Daniel's pleading with the king. He says this, Therefore, O king, my advice, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. What is he saying? If you repent, if you change, if you humble yourself before God, it's very likely that God will give you stoppage time. He will extend your rulership. He'll extend your prosperity. What was the X factor? Repentance. Repentance. Keep that in mind. Repentance is the X factor of the universe. It, it affects the stopwatch of time in the hand of God the Father. And when we preach and when Jesus, when Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his authority, he said, you're to receive power, you're to be witnesses, you're to preach. What is the goal? Repentance that people would hear the message of Jesus, would humble themselves before him, and would give their hearts to him, and it would affect the finish line. But in this case, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, repentance added time. In the New Testament, Jesus says when the gospel is preached, this good news is preached to the whole world, it will move the finish line closer. So in the Old, time, Old Testament, it moves it further. In the New Testament, it moves it closer. Stoppage time. So I finished the message to Ryan this way. I said this, I'm sure in God's omniscience that even though there is fluidity, he knows the exact date. 
but it certainly appears biblically that that date is hinged in some way to obedience by God's people, you and me. This is truly a team effort. When Jesus delegated this work to us, there was certainly risk involved because our free will was also involved. That's why disobedience to Jesus and living selfish, self-absorbed lives is not only sin against God, it's sin against our team mem members. It's sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's sin against the people we're supposed to be reaching. Our disobedience touches so many lives. And then I asked him, I said this, can you imagine what would happen if even 50% of believers did their part? Here is my conclusion. It certainly puts responsibility on every single believer to do their part. You can't just look to a few professional Christians to get the job done. So, Revelation number one is that when we pull the curtain back on time, we see God the Father behind that curtain with the stopwatch in his hand. But here's Revelation number two. God the Father is holding in his left hand the master calendar. Stopwatch, master calendar. Let's go to, to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. I want to show you where we get this. The disciples have asked, when, is, when are you restoring the kingdom? That's synonymous for the end of this age, the end of this time as we know it. Jesus said, it's not for you to know. The times are the epochs which the Father has fixed, fixed by his own authority. And now we're going we're gonna to linger on the word fixed. This is where we're going to go today. Fixed means firmly set in place, appointed, determined, scheduled. That word fixed means all of those. In other words, put onto the calendar. The sand of time, brothers and sisters, is not just randomly falling through the hourglass. There are fixed events, scheduled appointments, and predetermined actions on God's calendar. I've told people this over and over and over. Why I am so convinced of the truth, the ultimate capital T truth of Christianity is that it is not some religious philosophy. It's not just a belief system. It is a story. It is the movement of all of time. It's far larger than a philosophy. It has philosophical elements to it but it is the movement of time. It is God's administration of all of time, and God has a stopwatch, and he has a calendar. Now, let me show you how this works. In Isaiah 46.10, God is speaking, and he says this, Only I can tell you the future before it ever happens. In the Old Testament, this is one of the distinguishing factors that God shared with his people in the midst of a culture filled with idols, filled, it was polytheistic, many gods, small g. And God says, you can differentiate me from all these other gods in this way. Only I can tell, tell you the future before it ever happens. And he goes on to say, everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. That phrase, everything I plan, could also be interpreted everything I put on the calendar, every appointment I make 
will come to pass. God is sovereign over time. God, God is sovereign over the calendar of time. Now, here's what we conclude then. The Father plans, the Father schedules, the Father makes appointments, he puts them on the calendar, he announces, he foreshadows, he warns, and then he executes and he follows through with all of these fixed appointments. Let me give you a couple examples of this. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 21, God is speaking to a 99-year-old Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And he says this, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Now, Isaac hasn't even been born yet. Isaac is, this is a mystery. This is a brand new revelation to Abraham. But God is speaking and saying, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah... Abraham's wife, shall bear to you at this time next year. <laughs> what is God saying? He's saying this, Sarah is scheduled to have a baby boy named Isaac in exactly one year from today, and it's set, fixed on my calendar. <laughs> Extraordinary. Genesis 41, 32. You have a young man named Joseph. He's 30 years old. He's sitting in the royal Egyptian prison in God's training ground, being groomed to be the second most powerful man in the world, but he's sitting down in a dungeon in a prison cell. And he's summoned to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and interpret two dreams. Pharaoh has had two dreams. So Joseph takes a shower. He gets shaved he gets cleaned up and into Pharaoh he goes. And here's the statement he makes. He says, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is confirmed by God. And God will quickly or rapidly bring it about. That word confirmed means fixed, established. When God says things twice or gives two dreams, it is a double emphasis. This is going to happen. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. It's locked in and as good as done on God's calendar. Fast forward into the New Testament, Matthew 16, 21, and Jesus is prayer preparing his disciples for the end of his earthly ministry. And he's talking to them both in Matthew 16 and then it's parallel passage in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus says this to his disciples. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that was himself, must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed and after three days rise again. This is very specific and very dogmatic language. Why so specific? Why so dogmatic? Because Jesus was literally revealing to the disciples the master calendar of the universe filled out, fixed by his Father. In Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, it had been fixed prophesied, scheduled that Jesus would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be 
killed. Isaiah 53, he'd be a lamb taken to the slaughter. And if Psalm 22, a thousand years before, the crucifixion of Jesus was graphically depicted, even the piercing of his side with a spear, all of it in graphic language, it had been fixed on the calendar, scheduled on the calendar, appointed on the calendar. And Jesus said, it's fixed on the calendar, therefore I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed and I will rise again three days later. It's on the calendar. In the book of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied. Jonah went down into the whale, in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights foreshadowing as a type of what Jesus would do in his burial and his resurrection. And so when the leaders came to him in Matthew chapter 12, they knew he was doing miracles. And so the religious leaders came to him and said, listen, Jesus, we want you to pull out a, pull a rabbit out of your hat for us. Show us a magic trick. <laughs> pull a hanky out of, out, out of your hat or out of, out of your nose, out of your ears, whatever the case. Do a magic trick for us. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a magic trick, after a sign. Here's what you're going to get. Just as Jonah went into the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will go into the earth for three days and he will rise again. That's the sign you're going to get. Why? Because it has been appointed. It has been scheduled. It's on the calendar. This is the, the, the incredible, amazing, exciting thing about Scripture, and that is this, that 20 to 30 percent, look at this book, <laughs> look how thick it is. This thing is over 2,000 pages, but 20 to 30 percent of it is prophetic, prophetic. It is God sticking his neck way out <laughs> for telling the future long before it happens, Essentially what prophecy is, is just God opening up his calendar and showing it to us before it ever happens. So fulfilled prophecy is us looking back onto God's calendar and seeing it has been fulfilled. The appointment was kept just the way it was written on the calendar. Future prophecy is looking into the word, into the calendar, and seeing what is still fixed but yet has not happened. That is what prophecy is. It's God giving us the ability, the grand privilege of looking into his master calendar, both backwards and forwards. I was sharing with one of the viewers the other day, that is why I cannot walk away from Christianity, no matter how my emotions wrestle with certain things about Christianity. I can't do it. I would have to literally cut my head off. I would have to abandon my brain because God has given us this grand, amazing tool, if you want to call it that, that we call prophecy to so clearly, so powerfully validate truth. All of history proves God does what he says. God is in charge. He holds the the, the, the stopwatch of time, he holds the calendar of time. You can trust him. You can trust this book. You can trust the story. We know where history is going. All that's going on in the world right now, it doesn't surprise us. Is it hard to live with? Yes. Does it surprise us? No. We knew it long ago. We know what's coming. <laughs> we just have to look at the calendar. We have to look at the description of what God has said is coming. That's for another message.
So I want to give you three takeaways, three simple, quick takeaways. Number one, make it your life's mission to get your personal calendar aligned with God the Father's master calendar. Make it your life's mission to get your personal calendar aligned with his master calendar. Get your life aligned with what God is doing. Don't try to get God aligned with what you're doing. How ridiculous is that? In Matthew 6, after Jesus had told him, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, Peter the lead, the lead disciple, the one who had the most influence likely of all of the 12, he grabbed Jesus and took him aside and got up in Jesus' grill. He was angry and he began to censure Jesus. He began to lecture Jesus with the disciples watching and he was saying to Jesus, God forbid that these things should happen. They will never happen to you. Ha! Bold Peter. Bold people, Peter. Dumb Peter, but bold Peter. What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't just say, oh, Pete. <laughs> Pete, I've got to set a few things straight with you. Jesus looked at Peter, and he made sure the other disciples heard it, and he said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> didn't say, get behind me, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on man's agenda, not on God's agenda. In other words, you're trying to get me onto your agenda. I have a grand agenda that is set and fixed by the Father. You get on my agenda. Because <laughs> Peter and the boys had a great plan for Jesus, but it wasn't God's plan. And how often do we do the same thing? We have a plan for Jesus. We have a plan for our life, but it isn't God's plan. Think about this illustration. This is something I was thinking about as I was trying to get a sense of what would this be like this would be like showing up at the Superdome in New Orleans on Super Bowl Sunday and the game is being played. The cameras are all are set in place. The commentators are in their spots. The crowd is filling the, 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 the stadium. And I weasel my way into the, the, the stadium and I weasel my way down onto the field and kickoff is just about to happen. And here I am down on the sidelines trying to convince the players from both teams to come out into the, to, to the parking lot and get involved in my two-hand touch tournament that I've organized with all my buddies. Do you get the sense of what I'm saying? The Super Bowl is about to be played. <laughs> the granddaddy of all football games, but I'm trying to get the teams to come out and get involved in my little two-hand touch tournament in the parking lot. Eat one of my hot dogs. Have a corn dog. I'm a nut job if I think that that makes any sense. And if the security doesn't haul me away, the players will think I've lost my mind and they, they, will, they will completely ignore me. Get this guy out of here. We miss the big picture when we think we can do stuff like this. Instead, I come humbly into the stadium and I ask, is there anywhere that I can serve? What can I do to be involved in your grand endeavor, oh God? I'll pick up trash. I'll clean toilets. I'll take tickets. I'll do whatever. I just want to be involved in what you're doing. So takeaway number one is get your calendar and align it with 
his calendar, not the other way around. Get on his agenda. Don't try to get him on your agenda because that's what we do. We think God exists for us. No, 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 no. We exist for him. We exist for him. Scripture says we are his sheep. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. So often we think we're the shepherd. He's the sheep. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. He's God. We're not. So get on his agenda. Number two, the finish line. Takeaway number two, the finish line is the mission. The gospel going to all of the people groups of the world and then the end will come. The finish line is the mission. It's not your retirement or your financial security. The finish line is the mission, not your retirement or financial security. Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all language groups. Then the end shall come. I had a race in junior high. I raced, I did, I ran track through junior high, didn't run it any longer into high school, but uh, I was on a great team and I was in the 100 meter dash at home against one of the premier sprinters from another school and I was fast. I knew I could beat this guy in front of the home crowd. So we lined up and the gun went off and I took off and I was winning the race. But there was a false finish line that had been painted and I had my eye on that finish line and didn't see the actual finish line about 20 meters ahead and I shut down at 80 meters. <laughs> Thought I'd won the race. I was so excited until everybody ran right on by me. Dead last. It was one of the most humiliating races of my life. I was winning the race, but I had my eye on the wrong finish line. Well, brothers and sisters, the finish line is not your retirement. The finish line is when the gospel has gone to the whole earth and every language group has heard. That's the finish line. That's the finish line. Then the end will come. In Luke chapter 12, I'll let you read it. There is a rich man, and the story is, is really of the rich fool. The rich fool. Actually, I'm going to go to it and just give some bullet points. The rich fool in Math, um, uh, Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells this story. And there's so much we can learn. He says this. He told them a parable saying this. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger barns, and there I will store my grain and my goods. Then I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Another part of scripture, Jesus says, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Notoriety, fame, 
He's accepted at, at, at the entrance of every party wherever he goes. He's slapped on the back. His hands are shaken. People pay deference to him. Gains the whole world, loses his own soul. Brothers and sisters, the finish line is not financial security. It's not retirement. We haven't made it when people slap us on the back and pay deference to us. The finish line is when we have invested our life in the mission that Jesus has given us. This scripture, Jesus says that's being rich towards God. There are many people who are rich in many ways, but they're not rich towards God. And in God's agenda, if you're not rich towards God, you are a pauper. You are poor. You are not rich at all. You have missed it. You stopped running at the 80 meter mark. You've had your eye on the wrong finish line. What shall profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he's not rich towards God? When I stand before Jesus, it is my passion to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You ran all the way through the finish line. Instead of hearing, you fool. There will be people at the end of their lives, those will be the words they hear. You poor fool. Don't let it be you. Invest your life in the kingdom. Jesus said, seek first. Make it your top priority to build the kingdom, to get the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is what money is for. That's what time is for. That's what our gifts and talents and abilities are for. It's not building our retirement, not building our kingdom on this planet. Third takeaway, third takeaway, there is a day of accountability coming. We're going to get a report card. We're going to get a report card. Here's what Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31 says. The Apostle Paul is preaching passionately and he says this, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. That's the X factor. All people everywhere are to repent, are to turn around, are to change their hearts and minds towards Jesus. That means submitting to him, turning away from our sin, our independence, our, our, our thoughts about how we can make this all happen on our own. No, we can't. God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day. He has set a day. He has appointed a day. He's established a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? Having furnished proof to all the people by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. Jesus will sit on the throne as judge. And for those of us who know him, the question will be, was the finish line your kingdom or was the finish line my kingdom? For those who have yet to repent, the question will be this. Did you place your faith and your trust for eternal life in yourself, your good works, the fact that you are better than the next guy, or did you place it fully in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? That will be the question. And Jesus will sit on the throne judging in righteous judgment. So the third takeaway, brothers and sisters, is this. There is a day of accountability coming. There is a date 
fixed when Jesus will judge. Jesus will hand out report cards on the way you lived your life. Did you submit to Jesus as the first step? Did you make him Lord? Did you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead? Romans 10, 9, and 10. If so, you are saved. And then secondly, did you make your kingdom or his kingdom your final finish line? That is what we're going to be graded on. So I'm going to ask a couple questions. Whose calendar are you operating from? Whose agenda runs your life? Whose agenda controls your calendar? Ponder that seriously. Number two question, how is your life speeding up the coming of Jesus? How are you practically speeding up the coming of Jesus? How are you fulfilling Jesus' command to be a witness, to declare, to speak for him? How are you doing that? Are you doing that? And then finally, what changes do you need to make? What changes do you need to make? What action do you need to take as a result of this word? I'm going to finish with a statement that I heard many, many times growing up, and it is simply this. Only one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, it is my exhortation to you as I exhort myself, is to come before the King of the universe, the Lord Jesus, every morning and tell him, King Jesus, I'm showing up for service. I'm here to serve. What is your assignment for me today? Instead of showing up with your list of all the things you want God to bless and ask him for his signature on the bottom of the page, you sign the bottom of the page and leave it blank and let him fill it in. Get on his agenda, not have him bless your agenda. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for this word. I'm challenged by it. I pray, oh God, that those listening will hear, be hearers of the word, who apply this word, who dig and, and look at their lives and ask, how am I speeding the coming of Jesus? Whose agenda am I operating on, on and off of? Who is Lord of my life? What changes do, do I need to make? What actions do I need to take? And Lord, I pray that there will be change. There will be a shift. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, we're going to talk about two dimensions of time that God works within. This is a fascinating study. You'll be able to practically see your life in another dimension, in another way. You'll be able to see it in a much more crystal way when you understand these two dimensions of time. So we'll see you next time on, here at the Wrestling Room. God bless your week. See you later. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,